0: Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Here with me tonight is 3MA founder, Troy Goodfellow. Hello, hello. And once again, we have our elite irregular panelist, Bruce Garrick. Hello, gamers. So Bruce was our host just over a week ago when we got into all kinds of board games. You already heard our show on the works of Auction Master, Reiner Knizia, and if you haven't, go give it a listen. Uh, But tonight, we're back to discuss Mark Herman's Pericles a game that first puzzled me and then delighted me with its clever treatment of a generations-long great power conflict in 5th century BCE Greece. Uh, Troy, one of the first things that jumped out at me here is that while the game's name for Pericles, the Athenian statesman who led Athens into the Peloponnesian War that the historian Thucydides documented, uh, the game itself seems to take a much more modern view of what the of when the actual conflict between Sparta and Athens began, uh the distinct phases that it went through, and what the major strategic factors were. Can you set the historical table a little bit for us here?
1: Well now, uh historians tend to think of the Peloponnesian War as not just the Great Peloponnesian War, which began in what, four thirty-one, I think. 30, 430, yeah, four thirty-one or something. That uh about you know, 30 years earlier, uh, shortly after the defeat of the Persians uh, by the Greek alliance, there's what's called the First Peloponnesian War, which was provoked by not just Athenian Spartan rivalry, but by just a number of things going on within the nations. Um, the Spartan slaves revolted. And then when the Athenians went to help put down the revolt, Sparta didn't trust Athens. There were all of these insults uh, going on and that was one of these wars that Athens proved to be much more powerful on land than expected, um, as well as having its strong navy. Uh, It allied with Argos in Sparta to help um, try to restrict Spartan movement, but that war dragged on for about 15 years, I think, and it was kind of inconclusive. Um, It was a war that was kind of setting the scene for something larger. Athens was brought down by an you know, internal crisis. Uh, the deal, it was also busy trying to build up its own external empire. So you got this peace uh, that's supposed to be a perpetual peace between all of the Greek nations. Um, and this is the first Peloponnesian War before the Great War that we're more familiar with, and that's the Thucydidean War, which we generally call the Peloponnesian War. Uh, which begins in 431. And that is the one that Thucydides writes about. That is the one where we have, uh, in the meantime, in the in the peacetime, Athens has turned the Delian League, which was a naval alliance aimed against Persia, because Athens was very busy in Persia trying to, um, you know, we can prevent Persia from coming back by provoking revolts in Ionia. So the Delian League was Athenian naval league, all of the islands aimed against Persia. And then bit by bit, Athens kind of turns it into a actual kind of empire. They don't just... They say, well, instead of you guys having your own ships, why don't you just pay us and we'll build the navy? Um, So Athens kind of has a monopoly on, or at least a hegemonic naval power over the Delian League and is able to pretty much boss it around. Um, This leads to a bit of a conflict because they have... um, when in a Spartan ally, Corinth, one of its colonies revolts, uh, uh, Corcyra, an an island colony to the west of Greece, it revolts against its uh, patron, Corinth, and Sparta sends some ships to go and help the rebels, to help Corcyra. And this ends up being kind of a provoking incident. It's not the only incident, but it's kind of a provoking incident uh, that uh, Athens has all this power now, it sees the Delian treasury, it's going to flex its muscles with its fleet, and kind of push Sparta into doing something reckless. Uh, and Sparta kind of says, look, you know, war's on you. We'll go to war if you're ready for it. Uh, Pericles gives this great speech. He's the great general of Athens. He's led Athens through many victories in the past. And he says, you know, bring it, boys. We can do this. Uh, and he's got a very good, very sound strategy. Look, you can't cut off Athens' supplies. Our ships can go anywhere. Um, we can tear Sparta down, just bring all the population in, we can feed it from overseas, don't worry about your farmlands, brings in all the population, then there's a plague that just ends up weakening Athens completely, and what could have been a relatively short war uh, ends up being this 30 uh, year slog of that goes back and forth uh, Athens can't deliver any knockout blows on the sea, Sparta can't force a decisive battle and wins a lot of land battles, uh, goes up to Thrace and takes a bunch of cities up there in the north Uh, but it also gets uh, embarrassed when Spartans are forced to surrender to Athenians when they're cut down on an island. Spartan prestige is cut down. Athens is weak. You do end up getting a peace in the middle of it, the peace of Nicaeus which is supposed to be another perpetual peace another thing supposed to go on forever and then five years after that Uh, some wise guy named Alcibiades says, hey, we should flex Athens' muscles somewhere else. So they invade Sicily. That goes very badly. Um, And Sparta, who's been sucking up to Persia this whole time, uh, takes advantage of Persian money to build its own fleet and to pretty much destroy a much weaker Athens. Uh, This has become one of the great parables.
0: Uh, Now, Bruce... You would I think a lot the, the game tries to encompass all this this history. Uh, and what little I man, what little I played, I think it does a, a pretty good job of bringing a lot of these historical dynamics uh, you know into play, making the game feel authentic uh, to, to the history in, in some ways. but I think you'd played this game before, right? You, like at conventions. Uh yeah
2: we well I played it several times I played it at uh, Consum World Expo just uh, uh a few months ago in June uh well, actually with Mark Herman the designer and uh, with uh uh John Butterfield um another noted designer and uh with Nick Carp another noted designer um but <laughs> um but I also played it before that and I played it uh when it first came out or shortly after it came out maybe 6 months after it came out uh and we had some—I uh, I don't know if I call it difficulty—but it was it was a game that took us some time to sort of figure out.
0: Yeah, and I think that probably was my arc with it at first mm-hmm. too. The first, my my early, uh, as, as you were reading through the rules, and then the first probably full turn or so, I was kind of struggling to figure out how it all worked. Mm-hmm. Um, we're obviously not going to be able to get we're, like most listeners are probably not going to have a perfect. Uh, you know, one-to-one understanding of what the machinery of this game is as it as it runs, but if you can just take us through the highlights, what what are some of the key dynamics and and mechanics that drive it?
2: Sure. Well, the um, I mean, what Troy was describing there, his you know his his uh, thumbnail sketch of the Peloponnesian War sounds very much like what I think the game actually achieves. So uh, I guess that the game does have some historical uh, some historical chops. What the game tries to do is, it's a four-player game. Although Mark actually claims that it's best as a two-player game, with each person playing one of the two factions on the other side. Um, because what the game does is, it takes the two sides and divides them into two factions. And I think this is Troy. You can speak to this certainly better than I can. But um, especially in, uh, you know, in Sparta, there were uh, several. Sparta had uh, two kings. And uh, they would uh, they were from different families, and the Spartan way of making decisions uh, was very factional, although so I mean at really Athens was as well. This is the kind of uh, decision making at this time of the history. Um, there would be these discussions, people would vote on them. Uh, and uh, what Mark Herman's trying to do is is trying to give each side this idea of a push and pull between the factions and what the game is a four player game it's only two sides but only one player is going to win so only one of the two factions uh, in Sparta will win if Sparta wins only one of the two factions in Athens will win if Athens wins Um, and this comes from the, the mechanics that Mark Herman uses come from his game Churchill which is a game that is Intended to simulate the push and pull of power dynamics between individual leaders. So you have Stalin, Churchill and, and uh, Roosevelt who are arguing over issues uh, in Pericles this Arguing over issues is simplified uh, Whereas in uh, Churchill you have you know, the whole round really is all about all these multiple issues and you're back and forth and different ones in Pericles choose the issues you're going to to argue over or debate When you play cards you divide them up based on the cards you play and then only one of the two factions on the side will actually really get to um be the what's called the controlling faction the, the each each player gets to resolve the issues that that he chose but somebody is going to be the the um, the controlling faction is going to win the majority of the victory points that are up for that turn. Um, and the other thing is, once this uh, play shifts to the board, there's a very clear distinction between land combat and naval combat. The Athenians are uh, dominant at sea. The Spartans are dominant on land. And it really, I mean, I was just reading, I knew we were going to do this, sh- excuse me, and you were going to do this show, and so I pulled out uh, Donald Kagan's Peloponnesian War, the, the the one volume, not the not the four volume, and uh, and read through it, and it really, I think, captures a lot of the things that the the history has told us about the war, which is that just like Troy said, you know, the Spartans marched up into Thrace and took a bunch of stuff. Well, that's exactly what the Spartans can do. They can march all over the land provinces and take them. Um, but the Athenians can go anywhere they want at sea, and it's this this dynamic between um, you really can't conquer Athens until you defeat its ships, and you can't conquer Sparta until you defeat its infantry. And uh, the way the game it's a very it's a simple game in the in the terms of its um, its uh, combat resolution. I mean, there are there are uh, blocks, and there are uh, sort of, well, there are two different kinds of blocks. One is an infantry block. One is a naval block. But that's it. I mean, there's no you know, combat factors, no defense factors, no um, you know, m- no movement. You have uh, sort of an abstract system where you move these pieces around the board. Um, but they really do, I think, reflect the historical things that um, that I've you know picked up from from uh, reading Kagan for all these years.
0: Yeah, and. I think one of the interesting things for me is that like before I played this game, I always considered this a war that borders on impossible to satisfyingly recreate or or game because of this combination. Like one of the things that makes Lucidity such an engaging read is that it has the sweep from individual debates happening at the uh, different assemblies in Sparta and Athens. And then it can like sort of carry the action out to these far distant fronts, uh, you know, generals moving armies and fleets around, uh, individual troops in- engaged in combat. It really does uh, have this this sort of grand strategic scale in mind, but then also gets right down, uh, you know, occasionally into the... Tactical nitty gritty, and I never thought you could gracefully wed those two features of our best primary source on, mm-hmm. uh, on on the war together. I didn't. I did not think you you could do that. And what really surprised me here is that, in fact, I think Herman basically has managed to do that, and a lot of that is down to. A very useful degree of abstraction of the military stuff, as you said. It seems to be, it's it's very deterministic in terms of if somebody manages to care, like achieve a strategic surprise with a military action. There's no roll of the dice that's going to save the other the other side. The the mm-hmm. you know the people who end up with with more with more combat strength are probably going to win. There's a little bit of chance, but uh not not as much. You're not going to have those wild swings that you sometimes see in right. uh more traditional uh, you know, war, war games. And yet it also has this air of real unpredictability to it via these politics because one of the features of this era is that both sides at various times probably should be looking for ways out of this war, right? Mm -hmm. At at various points in this history, both sides probably need to, if not quit while they're ahead, at least quit before the stakes have gotten existential uh, for, for their Alliance. Sure. And yet time and again, somebody emerges on the same scene Alcibiades is kind of, uh, you know, the prime example here, of somebody who realizes that well, the nation might be in trouble if this thing continues going, but for me that's a that's an opportunity it is better it is better that I have a chance to come to glory by keeping this thing cooking and uh sort of emerging as a capable war leader and I think this is one of the features I really enjoyed is this you know, Troy Troy and I ended up playing together and you were playing with uh, you were playing with Michael Hermes mm-hmm. but Troy and I were sitting there and on the one hand we were trying to work together as Athens to fend off Sparta but on the other hand there was this element of wanting to make sure that if I was controlling faction I really wanted us to clean house and if Troy was controlling faction I didn't want us to lose but I maybe didn't want us to win quite as much. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I thought that was a really interesting dynamic that felt pretty authentic to some of the history. Troy, as, as my wingman slash uh, rhetorical rival in the Athenian <laughs> Assembly, what was your read on the way this thing uh, tries to bring the, the, link, the link between the political and the military?
1: I'm still trying to get a grip on how I feel about that, to be honest. I think the mechanic's an interesting one. Uh, I think the idea of having. I like cooperative competitive games where people are on the same side, but they have either different goals or they have to end up on top. I think it's a wonderful game design idea, and I like them when they're good games. And I think Pericles is a very, very good game. Um, one of the challenges is you want to have some level of coordination, um, but you can't have. Um, too much coordination because you're competing you're competing with against not just the other side but with each other um, but sometimes it's a critical thing and everyone has to be on the same side but you can't There's no. you can't talk on the table say oh I'm going to be putting this here because what you're putting down it could be a nothing it could be uh, you don't want the other side to know what you're putting down and it's an open table so you can't talk to your friend your, your ally and coordinate with them so you do have this is it I, I want you to trust me, but you might not be trusting me. You can't see what I'm putting down because it has to be secret from the other people. Um and there's no there's no it's not like diplomacy, there's no off-table negotiations, we can't plot everything. Everyone's got everything's gonna be right there at the table. Uh so there's that that little bit of uncertainty of am I putting down a military thing here because uh or, or say you've won you've won control of the assembly So and you've won it overwhelmingly so you have more of your colored chits than I do, but you have to even them out so I pass out some. Do I want to give you a really big victory by putting a military chit where there's going to be a battle? Or do I want to put that someplace else where you're assured of a victory or do I want a close victory? Um, maybe for the nation, I just want to have a win someplace so I'll put it down, but for you I might not. Do you trust me that I Do you trust that I have the nation's interest at heart or not? And there's no way to communicate because everybody has the same interest, which isn't quite how it was historically. I mean, in, in, in Sparta, there was pretty much just family factors. There was no real debate in Sparta over what's best for Sparta. Everyone knew what was best for Sparta. Keeping down the helots and smacking Athens around. In Athens, there was actually serious debate over, my God, should we have this war at all? Should we become more like Sparta? Should we just stop this altogether? Should we enslave all the islanders? Should we just rally crusade against Persia? There's no sense of factional ideology. It's just factions for Everyone's on the same side. Everyone has the same goals, except I want more points than you. So it's not a true representation, but it's true-ish. And in a game mm-hmm. like this, where it's so abstracted, true-ish and historish is better than historicity because historicity would have just been a, a bogged down mess. So the hysterishness of it works very well, I think, um, though the lack of communication can really be a pain in the ass sometimes.
0: So I will say, and Bruce, you you having just been in the middle of reading some Kagan, I I think uh, may may agree with this, but I think one of the things that I think Herman seems to be doing here is that one of one of the other one of the other things you got to deal with is that Sparta and Athens are the two major coalition leaders but they're not the only two powers with agency right but if you start introducing everybody that has historical agency at this moment Mm -hmm. as you said, Troy, it ends up being this incredible snarl, Mm -hmm. right? Like, to a degree, you can't tell the story, certainly of the early years of the war, or the middle phase of this struggle uh, between Athens and Sparta, you can't tell the story and say the Corinthians don't matter in it, right? The Corinthians don't have agency in it. They kind of are the hub in the uh, wheel of issues that begins to turn the two sides back to war. But that those centers of gravity shift and change a lot over the year. There's a there's there are moments when uh, when Corinth matters a great deal, and then as the war goes on, increasingly they matter a bit less and less. Uh, similarly, uh, you know, Thebes's uh, the Theban uh, significance waxes and wanes considerably over the course of this war, and that is tough to get across. But I think one he of does the it, things. Though. Pardon, he does it though, will of the assembly. Yeah, explain.
2: So <clears throat> I think what Mark is trying to do, I think in those some of those, uh, so every turn Mark is uh, gives you a a um, an Aristophanes card, oh, right. which is uh, right, which is one of his um, abstractions that he has. the 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 conference cards in uh, in Churchill are supposed to correspond to these various conferences held between the leaders. So in in, uh, in Pericles, he doesn't have anything quite like that but so he he uses um cards that uh, correspond to the plays of Aristophanes but each one each one sort of drives a turn and so if if there's a if the there's a Theban issue right so Thebes is you know you want that's where the that's where the conflict is centered that's where the power locus is for that turn the will of the assembly will say something like you know control Thebes or um you know uh that'll be yours and then someone else will have a different one or like we had uh, I can't remember what the there was something about Ionia where we yeah. I think both had to convert Ionia um, but I think that that's where I think that's where Mark is trying to uh, is trying to get at that sort of changing power dynamic where each turn a different part of the Mediterranean or a part of the Aegean um, a different part of the Aegean Sea is, uh, is sort of in play because of those power dynamics that you were talking about
0: and I would also say, I, I think, and where I was going, at least, was in terms of the sort of cross-purposes aspect of this that Troy describes, mm-hmm. and it's for a couple reasons. One is you can legitimately be working a little bit against each other. There's there's mm-hmm. a rivalry, you're fighting over points. There's also a bit of just of order of operations confusion that happens as the two of you, you're putting these these chits. So, quick thing, during the assembly phase... Uh, issues. Some issues are all like are already in play from the start. I think the controlling faction gets to choose an issue that already sort of belongs to them, and mm-hmm. they put it uh, yep. on their influence tracker. And then the trailing side puts an issue on their influence tracker that belongs to them. The two factions can still fight over these issues and try to sort of pull it off the other side and gain gain control of it. And sort of win the day. Uh, Or there are also issues still at play in the middle that are completely up for grabs. And when it passes to your turn, uh, you always have the option of saying, well, I want this to be, you know, we're going to debate over this now. And as long as some faction moves it out of uh, basically like debate limbo and moves it over to one side of the assembly, one faction is currently winning that debate. As long as it stays in that factions on that, uh, on that factions half of the uh, tug of war rope, then a decision was taken by the assembly and the side has an extra action. So if, if somebody uh, plays a military chit, the side that won that issue will have that shit in their hand, and they can place it somewhere to either uh, sort of raise troops or uh, t- deploy troops on an expedition. So the more issues are that are settled during the debate phase and moved out of limbo, the more actions your faction actually has. But if, and Troy and I had this happen a few times, if you end up continually basically nullifying each other at debate and this could happen by accident there were there were times when uh troy and i were trying to have this not happen but you have these cards in your hand uh that have values on them and on certain issues they get bonus values and so when an issue comes up for debate you sort of play the cards blind you reveal them and whoever has the higher sum uh on their card ends up Moving the uh, mo- moving the issue that many spaces along the assembly track. But if they equal each other, the issue isn't resolved and it stays in limbo. And so it can also remain stuck. But even once you've got the actions in play, and now you're placing them out there on the map uh, face down. Theoretically, even though Troy and I may have, may have a clear understanding of roughly how we want to fight against Sparta this turn. There is always the chance that our wires are a little bit crossed or we're just going to make a slight misplay somewhere or be inefficient because not only do you place these things in order, but then as the round passes, you reveal the chits uh, passing back and forth. And so Troy will get to choose to flip the next Athenian chit uh, in a location and then it passes to me. And it might be that a good play ends up getting nullified because we do things in a little bit the wrong order, uh, somebody, you know, somebody reveals a military attack chit before the forces were raised that were actually required to support that attack. That can happen, um, and I think one of the things that Mark Herman is getting across here is also that there's a herding cats element to this entire war. In some ways, Athens and Sparta are leading surprisingly resilient and sophisticated alliances and they have a sophisticated uh you know foreign policy and statesmanship apparatus on the other hand it's a bunch of dudes sitting on hilltops arguing about shit and deciding how they're going to handle things and i think this game kind of brings that across right that it's it's there's a lot of moving pieces here and there are a lot of people sort of with the... There, there are a lot of hands at work in all this, and there's just a lot of opportunities for coordination, whether through foul play or not, just to fall apart.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that the one of the things that Mark Herman does so uh, really cleverly in this game, I'm just... I, I've said this before, but every time I play a game like this, I realize why well, I'm not a game designer, because I could, never could have come up with this mechanic. But he has... You know, you put these, you put these chits down on the various regions and then you flip them up, but the ones that go down last get done first. So everybody has this sort of, you know, well what did he put there and what did I
0: put there? Because they're and, sitting on a stack. So the first yeah. thing to go is the at the bottom of the pile. The first yes, thing to Yes, last go down. in, first out. Yep. Yeah. So it's it's really a very um
2: it's 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 really a very sort of tense round where you place these things you're thinking okay well i want to attack that before he does that but if i put something down he's still got a thing on you know you know who's moving last you know you sort of try to misdirect Um, you have sort of dummy markers called uh, rumors Um, so these issues that you've won in this in this debate um, really do end up being um, your strategy um, but it might not be you know. It might not be your strategy that gets resolved because you know somebody else is the um, you know is placing their their issues as well, and you might place different issues that you sort of both want to get done, but somebody's going to get it done first, and then you might this situation may have changed by that time, and you're not able to 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 sort of move forward. So there's the coordination. I, I like the game because there it's a two-player game in which the coordination between the players can be difficult, which is how I feel it should be in a game of this era.
0: Troy, one of the things I really ended up falling in love with in this game, once I understood the system, because at first I didn't, uh, was the treachery mechanic. What did you think about this and sort of the way the game tries to capture it?
1: I was just about to bring that up. Um, We really undervalued treachery uh treachery is a diplomatic action you can take i think uh in which you can promote um you know dissenters within a region and each one is worth the value of uh one basic army point more or less you have a fifth column in there so you can pile up uh, treachery in a region which is very useful for a land weak power like athens who uh, might not have the military oomph to take on a Spartan legion, but it's also good for Sparta, especially in provinces that they can't get to because they don't control the seas. But they can, of course, use you know Spartan or Persian gold to bribe cities to their side. Um, it is it proved to be very crucial in in the second game we played. Uh, in the Ionia, where the Ionia was the big victory point, uh, Aristophanes thing for that game, and you uh, placed your treachery cards there and moved, moved the die far enough for us to flip that town. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it's very much... I, mean, I don't want to spend too much time on the Yes, it's very historically accurate. It's very historically appropriate. A lot of these... A lot of a lot of the Peloponnesian War was spent convincing cities, convincing oligarchs to overthrow Democrats, and Democrats to overthrow oligarchs. But sometimes the Spartans supported the Democrats, sometimes they supported the oligarchs, because it was it was the Cold War. It didn't wasn't ideological. It was all about power. Um but it's not just with the historical accuracy. It is very it is a tool that you, a weakened nation can use it takes a lot to raise an army in this game and Sparta can raise it's a gay, it's frontline troops it can do that once. Uh, Spartan troops are very hard to eliminate um, and very expensive and but in general armies are very expensive to build you have to devote and a turn spent building up your army is a turn spent not using it uh, which is a problem because you have to actually go in campaign. So it's you have so you have difficulties. So you have to use, uh, air. You have to use you know military cards or, or diplomatic cards to or league cards to build up your allies because you can't always do it at home. Um, so if you're weak or if you can't campaign because you're building up your army, using treachery as a defensive tool to prevent somebody from taking a city to even out the odds, is a very good game mechanic in keeping things from getting out of hand and preventing a steamroller situation. Um, I think we. We did get into the steamboat situation. It wasn't quite sure. Char- we understood all of the rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had some confusion. We had some confusion with the movement rules, especially in the, in in, in peacetime. We allowed, the, peace we allowed
2: the Spartans to assemble uh, yeah. it, when, before there was a have yeah. So that was – we sh- shouldn't have done that.
1: So but even in general, understanding the movement rules, you you, you you warned us going in, hey, the movement rules are a little bit tricky. And they were. Uh, but once you understand them, they're kind of intuitive. Uh but once you have all that, once you understand all of that, having the option for a player to say, "Well, look, I want to husband my resources, or I need to protect this flank, but maybe I'll throw a couple of drachma over there to persuade people to betray their city," or so you'll have you'll have competing treacheries. You'll have everybody stacking their treacheries in one area. Um, which makes it easier for a military conquest in other areas, because all the treasons happening someplace else. So it becomes either a diversionary tactic, because if you see somebody, if you if you guess your opponent has uh, diplomatic cards, and you watch them put them stuff, put them down on contested areas, you might think that's a treachery card. So you might want, well, oh, I would, I would put my diplomatic thing there as well. Though you might have wanted to place it someplace else to flip a. Uh, in an allied city. So there's this whole, so it plays into this first, the, the, the hidden action mechanic of if I don't put my treachery there, he'll put his treachery there, uh, and also the evening out the odds, uh, so once I can't run away with it, it does give Athens a very useful uh, land advantage, not advantage, but a land equalizer, and Sparta an equalizer for places that can't get its army too. Uh, so I think it's a really well done, uh, not just abstraction of the history, but it's a good game mechanic for keeping the game interesting and tense all the way through. Uh, I suspect if we had, if we played it again a third time, now that I know the rules a lot better. Now that I think I'm going to end up going, I'll probably end up buying it once my paycheck comes in. Uh, I've known to play it with, but I just want to read the rule book. Uh, mm. I, and it is a solitaire game I want to try. We'll see how the solitaire works out. Uh, it really does, I think, work as a, in so many different ways, the ability, the, the threat of a city or an ally turning against you. Because you're have league cities flip their allegiance Uh, and treachery can come into that though it's more useful in a battle situation so all of this stuff piles in both thematically and mechanically in a very sweet and intricate way
0: yeah I think what I love about the treachery is the first time I looked at this game and I was looking at the game board I was sort of thinking as games like this often do initially, it looks like your task is pretty simple. If I were the Athenians, I would simply <laughs> control my empire and slowly expand it and take over the Spartan empire. That 's what I would do. Uh, so why can't the Athenians do that? They basically had a freedom of movement anywhere like the the Athenians are basically the air the air mobile. Uh, faction in this game in in some ways the Athenians mm-hmm. can kind of pop up anywhere. So why can't they just slowly nibble away and chip away at the Peloponnesians using that but, and, movement? And, and and you can always and
1: after each turn
0: you freely
1: redistribute
0: your units across
1: the map, right? Which adds um, even more. Oh, this should be relatively easy, shouldn't
0: it? Yeah, except the thing is, and this this I think was the thing that took us a minute to realize is that you do one treachery move and it's probably not that impactful you know you do the check of do we put enough treachery in this place to flip it flip its allegiance no all right well i don't get the point but the treachery stays down there and i think this is a cool insight too is that it's not this like resource that you try to make a one off play with and this also feels very true to this history as this war drags on Increasingly, nobody can rely on their allies, right? Everybody starts realizing that maybe they signed up for a war they would they would really rather not be part of uh, everyone 's allies start resenting the war leader a little bit uh it just there there just becomes this you know what what began as these really cohesive alliances increasingly begin to feel but especially among the athenians uh, like they 've got a bunch of people being kept in check by fear but who are not necessarily enthusiastic alliance partners. And what's cool here is as Athens, you're sitting there, and I think this happens to Sparta, basically the minute you begin rolling a little bit and you begin expanding and your troops sort of empty out of secure territories and begin moving to uh, the front lines on the periphery of somebody else's empire there's a very good chance that somewhere back there treachery tokens are just going to start popping up like like mushrooms after a rainstorm mm-hmm. and eventually there's going to be enough there there there's no there's no doubt here once once enough treachery tokens appear if there is not a corresponding number of allied bases and troops to sort of keep that in check um there is there's a simple math equation that governs whether or not those alliance bases are going to flip. Those alliance garrisons are going to turn traitor, and they won't go away. They will actively become hostile. They will actively join uh, either the Peloponnesian uh, League or they will join the Delian League. The thing you can do is you can put one of your own garrisons in there, so you can pay basically twice as much To convert an allied base into a Spartan or Athenian base, but man, in a game where actions are really a precious currency, that is a painful decision to have to make. You don't, you don't really have the luxury of continuing to just shore up your empire Because you do have these missions hitting every turn where, okay, gang, this turn, uh, the most important front is Sicily. You need to just have presence in Sicily. Okay, I guess we need to go to Sicily. I don't know how we're getting there, but we have to do that. That is the strategic imperative of the moment. I can't really afford to sit here and convert our garrison, sorry, the Delian garrison and Amphipolis To an Athenian garrison. I need that action somewhere else. And that becomes really cool because you start, like, both sides end up, as they begin to enjoy some success, they start looking at the map and realizing, damn, there's a lot of vulnerabilities I have to shore up here. And I kind of love the paranoid uh, porousness of the strategic picture that emerges Mm -hmm. in this game as it picks up.
2: So one of the reasons for that is that the treasury markers are limited in in number, right? So you can't just do a bunch of diplomacy and try to lock down your whole empire because you don't have the markers for it. Right. Yeah, because that's that's your you know you, if you want to if you want to go try to convince someone over in uh, uh, you know in the Peloponnesus that uh, that they want to join you, then you might need to. Uh, give up your efforts in Thrace, right? So there's there's just different ways to. Um, there's, there's only so many. You you're, you're exactly right. What you, what you said is that you have you're constantly trying to assess. You know what's really a, a a good strategic objective, and there. And also the other thing you should mention, there aren't that many turns. Yeah. Um, the now we we played really like a I think we played a one turn scenario and a two turn scenario. There is a there is a first Peloponnesian War scenario. There's a second Peloponnesian War scenario, and there's actually a a, a whole war scenario. Um, but the turns don't uh, there aren't that many turns. It's what happens within each turn that's so important.
0: Yeah, I, I would say mind you, there's still a ton of action. Uh, I mm-hmm. think what is it yep. longest game is ten turns, but that's going to equate to you know, each turn is going to have probably eight actions per faction at the very Mm -hmm. least. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's on a pretty weak turn. So there's, there's a lot of back and forth, but you, but you're right in terms of those like opportunities to score points. They're kind of precious. You, you can't, you really, maybe you can punt once in a longer game, but you really can't punt multiple times and say, well, I'm going to win this thing in the long haul. Mm -hmm. Uh, because an outright military victory is really tough to achieve. Like, it, this, right. a lot of this is going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be a split decision in, in some ways. Um, one of the other dynamics here that I really enjoyed, I, I'm so happy I got to see it unfold is the way war and peace works. Uh, Bruce, you'd mentioned this doesn't come up very often. Uh, You know, at at the start of a scenario it does because usually somebody needs to make the decision to tip things into war. But I wasn't sure we would see peace break out or threaten to break out unexpectedly. Uh, But when it did, it was a really cool dynamic that it introduced. Can you take us through that a little bit? Yeah, it's the the idea that, you know, war and peace is a...
2: a, uh... Is an issue, and if somebody, um, if somebody wins the uh, war and peace issue, so you you, you um, I want to remember I get this right. I think I think if you, if the issue, is in, the center, that means everybody agrees on it, which is different from um, from the uh, from the way that uh, other issues work, right? So if you get an issue to your side, then you win. Um, to declare war, you have to get the issue to your side, but to declare peace, both sides really have to have to agree to it. It has to sit in the middle, and so um, you can have uh, a situation where one side wants to go to war, but one side doesn't, and that side uh, can can fight to. Um, uh, to keep the to keep the peace marker from 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 going to the going to the center and uh, it's it's very it's very similar to the uh, uh, thing that the, in in Churchill where in Churchill the uh, um, you could only get certain issues like uh, um, strategic materials I think was one of them that if, if everybody agreed okay we're going to put everything in, and everybody got the strategic materials if only uh, if the strategic materials issue went to one side, then only that side got strategic materials. So that's a, it, it requires a bit of agreement, which I think is a really neat, uh, a really neat uh, mechanic for the for the war
0: and peace. Um, I, now I think the way it happened for us was it was a card, it was the assembly uh, card that flipped war and peace as an issue. It can also happen if both sides suffer a defeat right like if right if both sides on the same major turn, defeat yeah yeah what what separates a major defeat from just a regular old defeat I think, I think if i think if you it's more than three honor okay uh yeah so basically if both sides manage to really give each other a bloody nose uh then both assemblies are basically going to say we need to get out of this thing and unless unless at least one faction pulls that issue over their side and says, no, we need to keep going to war. Mm -hmm. uh, Peace will break out in a longer scenario. Like the full 10 turn, the cycle could probably repeat in the shorter scenarios we were playing. There was a point where Troy and I needed to make sure the war uh, would keep going because we had a brutal turn where the first thing that happened in that war, I think, or the second thing that happened uh, was the will of the assembly was that, uh, as, as you pointed out earlier, Bruce, Thebes and Boeotia became the most important front in the war. And that's Sparta's doorstep. Uh, that is an easy place for the Spartans to mobilize to and just sort of swarm with troops. Mm-hmm. And so we had a really ugly turn uh, where we just got, we just got crushed um, in, that, in that front. I think we threw some good money after bad uh, trying to hold on to that, which meant we got rolled up in a couple other places. And at the end of it, we had taken a real pounding and we were in or near the window where the game would end on the next t- the next time that peace was declared. Mm-hmm. And so and are looking at each other, like if we have any prayer of bringing this back, we need to keep this war going. How are we going to win that war? That was a problem for later in the evening. Right. But for okay. now, we need to just keep fighting. Right, and remember, peace is worth ten honor. Right, uh, for the declaring peace, right? For the person who wins the issue, I
2: think it's for the controlling faction. I can't remember. It would not if yeah. you win, no, because you don't win the issue, right? It's if few, few pieces declared. Actually, no, I think it's both sides get ten honor. I can't remember. That's a yeah. rule I should. I should, uh, but but I I don't I don't have that yeah. those rules internalized.
0: Nevertheless, it was very it was a very cool moment as as we realized like, man, we've got to burn some cards getting this issue off the table um, just, to, just to make sure that Athens has a chance to regain its lost glory. Hmm. Uh, by the way, I, like in terms of historical theming, one thing that really delighted me here was time and again as we were playing this, we'd encounter a rule that initially didn't make a ton of sense. Like Initially, hmm. I think we didn't understand what the hell happened when Alcibiades ended up in persia like mm-hmm, clearly right. he clearly he was going to cause some sort of persian intervention but the manual in the part that describes alcibiades going to persia didn't really make clear what the effect of that would be but i was sitting there i was thinking no there that doesn't the the rule that we're interpreting doesn't match the history of your wealth doesn't make a lot mm-hmm. of sense so leafing through the manual uh in a in a slightly different section um possibly, like, under, under mustering troops, it turns out like, no, the Persians completely changed the math of bringing out uh, Spartan warships. Um, yeah, it was
2: under Persian bases, I think. Yeah. Which is, yeah. Which is why we had, couldn't find it at, at first. We're like, well, what is, uh, you know, it allows you to build bases in Persia, but then, like, well, what are we building? And then that kind of all made it. So, I remember, I actually remember that. You're like, oh, I get that. That's exactly how it should be. I think was kind of your your reaction
0: right because as troy alluded to like eventually sparta realizes one of the really amazing things about the uh great peloponnesian war is that the things that initially started proved to be non-issues um Mm -hmm. everything hinges on the possibility that the corinthians have this huge navy and they're allied with sparta and they're about to take corsaira who also have a huge navy and they're offering to throw in at the Athenians, and somehow the entire like the balance of power in the Greek world hinges on this entire issue. Uh, it's what pulls the sides into war, and then it turns out both the Corinthians and Corsairians just completely suck,
1: <laughs> um,
0: just absolute garbage navies, um, right. complete paper tigers. And this dynamic doesn't really change. Um, like they, they they get more competent, but the, but the bottom line is eventually the Spartans realize, damn it, we're gonna have to do this thing ourselves, and mm. it's not something they're comfortable with but they do need to become a naval power but they don't have the funds to do that and so the person that the bankrolls it is the great king Um, but the deal is that once the war is done and the Athenians have been broken uh, Persia can do what they want in Asia Minor and Mm -hmm. they can retake all those lost Greek city-states but it was very cool that like this was a game where repeatedly, whenever something didn't initially make a lot of sense, if you sort of trusted your gut and thought about the theme, about the history it's trying to evoke, usually there was a rule somewhere that seemed to speak directly to it, which was both cool to see, but also for the way I understand games and relate to them, kind of crucial for me, right? Like my ability to comprehend a game uh is really closely tied to how well it evokes a theme. And so being able to sort of feel my way forward on this game just by knowing the setting a bit mm-hmm. was made the the lift of understanding it way way lighter.
2: Yeah. So you didn't really like the per- the um Athenian submarines.
0: Okay. So I've thought about it um I'm better with it i Mm -hmm. did think it was weird so i did think it was weird that sparta could have troops basically cut off in sea uh in sea spaces so they're Mm -hmm. they're not really they're not really in communication with sparta by land uh the athenians could cut them off Mm -hmm. and somehow that spartan army would not simply wither and die but could instead sort of magic itself anywhere uh, during the end of turn move phase. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just
1: magic that away as the, the, the campaign season is over. The warships are back in their ports for the winter, but the transports can haul troops back. So I just, that's how I just magic it in my head.
0: All, yeah, and on a further reflection, I don't think the game's timescale scale requires a degree of hand waving about this, yeah. you know what I mean mm-hmm. this is this isn't Cornwallis at Yorktown, yeah these are kind any, of
1: you're not gonna have any suspectaria moments here you're not gonna have you know oh I've captured the Spartans on an island, therefore now they surrender type thing uh I thought this game' a broad strategic uh thing, yeah uh season to season. It's campaign season to campaign season, so
0: yeah, I'm fine with it, yeah uh i'm I'm good with it, and besides, I think it'd be it. There's a more important limitation, which is that troops to start a turn like troops who are left in a space over the course of a turn uh, that that space does need to have bases to support them right uh, And so if there's if if there's not that, if you do not have a forward operating base, that's really the limitation on where you can have troops stationed in advanced positions. So yeah, in the end I was good with it. Uh, it was just the one place where I, I did, I did stumble a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, but yeah, I like overall I was really thrilled with how evocative this felt of its theme. And mm-hmm. I certainly didn't think that was something that was achievable in, in a single game. So I was I was pretty blown away. Yeah, I thought it was... I, I The more I play it, this is a game that the more I play
2: and the more I understand, the more I really appreciate it. It's very similar to, um, to Empire of the Sun in that way. Uh, I think Mark Herman is a... I mean, he's just a really... He's an incredibly talented game designer, and... Uh, he designs a completely different kind of game than the cool Euro or not kind of thing where you sit down and everybody's like, oh, look at this. Oh, this is so neat. And you sort of play through it. And on your first playthrough, you're like, wow, this is... Because because he is trying to, like you said, it's, he's tied to a historical um, subject. And one of the things that's important is how he expresses that historical subject. Now, for all the listeners out there who are thinking, well, you know, that's great, guys. You're... Um, You're talking about this game that requires four people, and even if you say you can play it two-player or, you know, you can play solo, um, it just seems like a big lift. Mark Herman did design a separate, totally solitary game about the Peloponnesian War called, kind of interestingly, the Peloponnesian War. Um, That came out in, I think, uh, 1992 or so, but it just got re-released with beautiful new graphics, uh by GMT, so that's available for you as well. It plays completely differently. It's a it's a it's a far more uh sort of chit encounter. It, I mean it's not exactly, but but it's yeah, it's a more of a, it's a it's it's not nearly this kind of hybrid um abstracted game.
0: So Troy where did uh you know what what were your feelings Going into it and then and then coming out of it, I've already sort of said my piece about I didn't think a game could do this. Where, where were you I, was,
1: I was, I was, I, I, knew a game could do this because a game can do anything. Uh, but I was looking forward to it because it's a, it's a time period I love, of course. Um, I own Churchill, i been looking forward to opening up Churchill, uh, so I'll be taking into that sometime. And if, when Bruce said these are related, so, okay, gets. I learned this, then I can back learn some of the stuff into Churchill. Um, when I started playing, I was very confused by a lot of it. A lot of the choices seemed peculiar or arbitrary. Um, and I really, I think it took us getting through the first game for me to, for, for to click. And once it clicked, and you you have that moment on you're playing a board game where you're going through the rules, and you're following the rules because those are the rules. And, you're, and Bruce tells you that you're supposed to do. So you're following what Bruce says. Mm. And you're not playing the game as much as you are playing the rules.
0: The Garrick rules. A point hit, Mm -hmm. it
1: was sometime in the second game. I'm not sure exactly when. I think it was when we were planning our uh, expedition to Syracuse, to Sicily or something. I said, Oh, yes, that's it. Now I understand how this whole map is linked. Now I understand why the naval movement is how it is. And now I understand how the base counting rules for victory points pushes each side to do different things. Everything just kind of snapped into place. And once that's snapped into place, this is a game I really would love to play again. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I I don't have any friends here in Toronto who will play board games with me, but it is something, I, I mean, my, I'll probably go down to the Meeple Mart sometime next week and see if they have this, because I would love mm-hmm. to just pick it up and play it um, mm-hmm. and not order it, but it's a part my local board, board game store. Yeah. Um, and see how it works out. I'm. I, I, I just want to dig into the rules. I want to read through the cards. Right. I want to see if we missed something. So I still think mm-hmm. we missed something. Sure, I'm sure we, we missed did. so much. I'm sure we now, missed something that, else. Note uh, that you can play I, against I really the solo bot, bot it. named it Formio. Want to Go back and play uh, the longbow uh, Peloponnesian war game. Hegemony <laughs> Gold. Mm -hmm. which has a Peloponnesian scenario. I couldn't get it to work for some reason, so I'm not sure if that game just doesn't cooperate now or what. Um, It it is a fascinating setting, and Herman has done a very good job of abstracting uh, the particularities of the war into into larger strategic problems um, and larger gameplay rivalry problems. So I'm a huge fan of it so far. Uh, But, like, it's only been a couple of games. Maybe I'd be bored after seven or eight games. But how often do people play the same game seven or eight times, unless they're Bruce?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I think... I know for a fact one of the things that Troy and I missed, and Bruce, you tried to warn us about this repeatedly, uh, we tended to look too much at the forces on the map and not enough about just the rules of the game and how strength in a space doesn't necessarily translate to strategic outcome right mm-hmm. uh you know it's it's actually one of one of the dynamics here is that as long as the athenians can maintain naval contact uh with a base somewhere that base can't be knocked out like they they end up maintaining a presence so the two the two sides can both have friendly bases uh in In a territory in a theater simultaneously, and so like one of the recurring themes of this game is that yes, troops can move around and you can have dramatic battles happening, but actually delivering those those really those those strategic hammer blows to each other is actually really tough because the two sides and I think this is this is also one of the things that makes the movement kind of hard to parse this entire game is kind of built around this idea of these are two adversaries whose strengths kind of go past each other. It's actually Mm -hmm. tough for them to knock each other out on the other's terms, but to win this thing, they both have to somehow do this. The Athenians have to figure out a way to start notching some victories on land. The Spartans have to figure out a way to start driving off Athenian fleets and taking some of these bases. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think the thing that Troy and I struggled with is that it is very difficult to look at a map and see a shit ton of Spartans ready to come boiling out of Sparta and, and sweep you aside somewhere. And to remember that, yeah, they can get there, but they can't actually drive you off.
2: Right. Well, that's because of the, um, the fact that you can't... Every, 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 um, every area has, is either naval or land, and you can't, you can't fight a naval battle uh, can't fight, fight a land battle in, an, in a naval space without winning the naval battle first, and so since Athens is a naval space um, Sparta can bring all the troops it wants and fight all the land battles it wants as soon as it wins a naval battle in Athens, and that's kind of what it has to do, so I think that, that dichotomy that it creates is, is really, that's just such a clever, um, a clever thing that Mark has done to, to keep the combat simple, but really uh, highlight the differences
0: Yeah, Uh, so I think for me this ends up being, you know, I think about the games we played uh, at at your house during that during that wonderful long weekend. I think in terms of like pure fun things that were easy to get into and that I'll share around a lot. Like it's tough to beat Raw and Modern Mm -hmm. Art, Mm -hmm. but in terms of things that feel like they were just gifts made out directly to me. In mm-hmm. some ways, like, it is difficult for me to imagine a game that I would click with more or be more tickled by. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think if, if you're one of those people who sort of has had Thucydides rattling around your head for a long time and has enjoyed mm-hmm. this history, um, this game is almost can't miss. You mm-hmm. know, you, you kind of have to play this because I don't think yep. I've ever seen Troy-sided uh, Hegemony Gold, which which until now, I probably would have said was my favorite uh, you know, uh, Hellenic era Greece strategy game. Mm-hmm. This this tops it uh, pretty wow. thoroughly. It's way more mm. sophisticated. It, mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 way more elegant design and captures more of the strategic dynamics and more yeah. of the history you can read about. So mm-hmm. I, I adored it. Thank you for sharing it with me.
2: Awesome. I'm glad you did.
0: All right. Well, that will do it for this week. We'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. Alicia Akampora uh, produced this episode of Three Moves Ahead, which is hosted in the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com 3MA. We'll be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead. Until then, for Troy, Bruce, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight. I totally misread that final line of the outro. It's not Troy Bruce. It's for Troy and Bruce. Troy Bruce!